Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we are almost done with our series on Missing the Point. And today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 11, verse 47 through 51. And so if you've been with us for the past few weeks, we've been going over some of the things that Jesus is, he's kind of like complaining, right? He basically says, woe to you religious people, you've gotten these things wrong. And we're going through the list. And today we're looking at verses 47 through 51. This is the sixth woe, because Jesus says, woe to you. Okay, and so we're going to read through it and agree together that we don't understand what he's saying and then look into it to see what it really means. Okay, so let's look at the verse. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets, whatever that is, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Okay, let's keep going. <laughs> because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and other, uh, others they will persecute. Lost yet? Okay, let's keep going. <laughs> Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Okay, so the first time I read this, I was like, oh, I should know what it means because I studied this stuff, but I still didn't get it. Now, lucky for us, a few weeks ago, if you were with us a few weeks ago, we talked about this thing called a parallel passage. A parallel passage is basically, well, the book of Luke is a biography of Jesus from the perspective of Luke, okay? Now, it turns out there's three other biographies of Jesus, and sometimes the stories overlap. So there's a guy named Matthew who wrote another biography of Jesus who's, who wrote a similar story. He used different words here and there, but the content's the same. So if you look at his passage, maybe you'll understand a little bit more of what Luke was trying to communicate. So let's look at Matthew chapter 23. This is that parallel passage. It says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. So he added that in there. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part, in, part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So what is he talking about here? So for us to understand what's happening here, we have to talk about three things. The first thing we want to talk about are prophets. Second, we're going to talk about the ancestors. And third, we're going to talk about what that all means to, to us. And I think after we get through that, we'll understand exactly what Jesus is angry about here. So first, let's talk about the prophets. Now, prophets, I want to give you two things you need to know about prophets. Number one, prophets, I think a lot of people have this conception that prophets are people who tell, predict the future. It, that's not entirely true. Okay, so prophets are people who hear from God, and they share that faithfully to the people that God told them to share it with. So if God told me to tell you something, I would be considered a prophet, and I don't compromise on anything. It may make me unpopular, but I still have to share it because I'm a prophet. Okay, so sometimes God will talk about events of the future, and that's why I think prophets got this reputation of being able to predict the future. It's not prophets who do that. It's that God reveals things, and sometimes God reveals things about the future. So prophets are people who share things that God has told them. Okay, that's the prophet. Secondly, the second thing I want you to know about prophets is that prophets, 99% of the time in the Bible, share these words with people who are the people of God. You will never find a prophet in the Old Testament standing on the street corner with a sign telling people that they're going to go to hell. That's, that's not what a prophet does. A prophet usually, 99% of the time, there's one or two exceptions, 99% of the time, they always have a word for the people of God. Okay, so I want to make that clear. They don't go and talk to people who don't know who God is. They talk to people who, are, who have dedicated themselves to following God. So most of the time when you read through the Bible, like some of the prophet books, prophetical books, 
They are talking to people who have already committed themselves to following God. And that's very important for us to understand what we're going to talk about today. So when Jesus talks about tombs of prophets, he's talking about this general category of people who have committed themselves to sharing the word of God to the people around them without compromise. That might have made them uh, unpopular, right? And so one of the examples we're going to look at today is this prophet. His name is Prophet Jeremiah. Because there's a lot of prophets. We're just going to pick one. And I'm picking Jeremiah because there's a lot of information on him. So, um, and there's a book called Jeremiah, and I think you could read through that on your own if you want. So here's some background on Jeremiah. Jeremiah lived about just over 600 years before the, the time of Jesus. So when Jesus talks about prophets, he could be talking about Jeremiah, who lived 600 years before him, okay? And Jeremiah, he lived in the southern part of Israel, which was called Judah. Judah, remember that, Judah. And he was a priest. He lived there. And he saw people coming to his temple, the temple of God, and they will worship. And he's like, this is kind of cool. Like, people are here worshiping God. I love my job. I love that people love God, right? But then he started sensing that something was wrong. And as he started sensing something was wrong, God started to speak to him, and now he became a prophet. He had to share these words with the people around him. So the book of Jeremiah is basically a collection of all his sermons and all his writings, and some ancient editor just bound them together in some order and said, here's the book of Jeremiah. So that's what we have in our Bible, okay? So Genesis, uh, not Genesis, Jeremiah chapter 7 is one of those sermons. And we're going to go through chapter 7, and uh, this sermon is called, we call it the temple sermon. So let's take a look at it so you could get an idea of what really irritated Jeremiah. So let's take a look. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. So this is Jeremiah saying, God spoke to me, for all you people are coming into this temple. I have a word for you from God. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. He says, if you want to be close to God, you've got to change the way you're living. I've noticed there's some things that you got wrong, and some of the things that are really destructive. You've really got to change your ways if you want to keep coming to God. Well, can you give us an example of what, what we're doing wrong? It's like, sure, I'll keep going. Next verse. He says, do not trust in, deceptive, in the deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. Uh, this is what he's saying. Let's just say a prophet comes here and tells you, guys, Westlight, you guys, um, you guys are totally messing it up. <laughs> you guys are living your lives in a really dangerous way. You need to change the way you're living if you want to keep coming to God. And then you say, but we go to church. We go to church. We go to church. And then God would say, great, but that doesn't change anything. You're still bad people, right? So that's what they're saying. You know, the temple of the Lord is not an excuse for, you know, it's not like because you do that, it offsets and you're even, you know, that's not, he's saying you're still in trouble. If you really change your ways and your actions and, uh, and your actions and deal with each other justly, so he says, first thing you have to do is you have to treat each other fairly. You guys are not treating each other fairly. Expand on that, Jeremiah. Like, sure, I'll expand on that. Next verse. If you do not oppress the foreigners, the fatherless, or the widow, and do, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. He says, here are some things that you have, you're not doing well on. Okay, number one, when people are refugees, people are running away from their countries to find a safe spot, and they say, hey, I heard that the God of Israel is, is a really good God, so I'm going to come in here to check it out. The way you treat them is actually not that respectful. If they're coming here because they're looking for some safe place, you need to treat them well. That's number one. Number two, there's some people who are orphans. You need to treat them well because they have no security. And back in those days, widows, and maybe in some cases today, 
you know, if, if your husband is dead or if, if you got a divorce or whatever the case may be, you're stranded. In those days, those were the, having a man in your family in those days was the way that you made ends meet, and now you can't do that anymore. So these people, you need to take really good care of them. And not only that, you're killing innocent people. That's another problem. You need to fix all these things. And, and the people are probably sitting there listening to Jeremiah, crossing their hands, their like arms, and they're like, ah. Like, I, do you have any proof, Jeremiah? Do you have any proof that, that we're actually like this? Because what we do is in secret. You don't know that we're doing these things, right? And he says, actually, I do have proof because I've been watching you guys. Well, what, what's the proof? It's like, well, when you come in here and worship God, you leave the temple of God, and right around the corner, right outside, maybe not even outside the gate, you're doing something bad already. It's like, oh, wh- what do you mean by that? Well, let me show you. Verse 30. The people of Judah have done evil in my eyes, declares the Lord. They have set up their detestable idols in the house that bears my name and have defiled it. He says, this building, this temple, has my name on it, Yahweh, okay? And you, the people of God, have my name on it too. You're, you know, people look at you and say, oh, those are the people of Yahweh. You, you are the people of God. And the way you're living your life and the way you're treating this building is actually kind of making people think, oh, is that what God is like? And God's like, no, that's not me at all. These people are representing me, but that's not who I really am. You're defiling my reputation. Well, what are they doing? And this is the part that kind of gets graphic. Next verse. They have built the high places of Topheth. Topheth is like an altar. It's where you bring your sacrifices and stuff like that. You have built the high places of Topheth in the Valley of Hinnom. Ben Hinnom, we'll come back to that. To burn their sons and daughters in the fire, something I did not command, nor did it enter my mind. He says, you come in here and you worship God on your way out and you're not even far away from the building yet. You're just like right at the gate. You're like, okay, we just worship God so we can do whatever we want. Let's build another altar here and sacrifice our own children. These people are killing and burning, slaughtering their own sons and daughters. And God's like, I never asked you to do that. If you're supposed to be representing me, you should be taking care of your children. Why are you killing them and sacrificing them? Like, if your heart and my heart are supposed to be aligned, and that's your reputation, when you do those things, people think that I'm like that. Maybe you've heard people say, the Old Testament God is a very violent God. It's like, I don't know how I got that reputation, but the way you're living is definitely adding to that reputation. Please, stop doing that. Now, you see how it says the Valley of Ben-Hinnom? That, that, it's a place right outside the doors, the gates of Jerusalem. And in some Hebrew texts, it's, it's called Gehenna. That's, you know, and when, it, when Jesus walks the earth 600 years after this story, and when he starts talking about hell, he uses the word Gehenna. What he means by, what, what he's talking about is this. When somebody says, what happens to bad people? Jesus looks at the place where the Jeremiah story took place. He's looking at it and saying, you see how in the past in Gehenna, people would burn their own children, right? It's like, that's kind of a representation of what hell is like. Hell is a place where everything the opposite of what I stand for is taking place. In other words, this is Jeremiah's beef with these people. He's saying this, in this temple, which represents the kingdom of God, you have brought hell into the kingdom of God. And I can't stand by as you do that. So God speaks to Jeremiah and tells his people, the people who worship God, you guys are bringing hell 
into the temple. Please stop. If you don't stop, God will want nothing to do with you. He, he wants to separate himself from you. Can you change, please? So how do they respond? Let's skip to chapter 26. But as soon as Jeremiah finished telling all the people everything that the Lord has commanded him to say, the priests, the prophets, and these prophets are false prophets, and all the people seized them and said, you must die. So Jeremiah just finished his speech. 26 chapters of speeches, right? Everything God told me, I finally let it out. And that was one example of one of the sermons he gave. You need to change your ways because you're representing God in a bad way, and this is destructive to you, too. So please stop. And as soon as you finish, they're like, hmm, thanks for sharing those words with us. We, we appreciate you having the courage to share that with us. I think you, I think you need to die now, <laughs> right? And, and so let's see what happens next. Why do you prophesy, prophecy in the Lord's name that this house will be like Shiloh, that's like a place that was destroyed, and this city will be desolate and deserted? And all the people crowded around, around Jeremiah in the house of the Lord. So they're all gathering around Jeremiah with knife in hand. They're like, okay, let's go get him. Next verse. Then the priests and the prophets, false prophets, said to the officials and all the people, this man should be sentenced to death because he has prophesied against this city. You have heard it with your own ears. So when Jesus talks about woe to you Pharisees, you religious people, and he talks about prophets, this is an example of one of the prophets that Jesus is talking about, okay? Because what, when Jesus said that, the image that came to people's mind was this, that the prophets of the Old Testament, they were murdered by the people of God. God said, I'm going to send my, my, my own servants out there to share this message that might be hard for people to hear. And as soon as he shared it, these people were killed. Now, that was 600 years ago. As time goes on, people started saying, oh, you know that guy Jeremiah that we killed? We chased him down, and I think he escaped, but he ran away. I think his, he died in Egypt somewhere. That's the rumor of what happened to Jeremiah, right? It's like, I, I think he's dead in Jeremiah. They're like, yeah, but you know, everything he said actually was true. It actually happened. It's like, ooh, we killed a servant of God, a messenger of God. Ooh, what should we do about this? What should, what should we do? What should we do? They're like, well, we need to honor him somehow and say sorry. It's like, okay, what should we do? Well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to build tombs for our prophets, and we're going to decorate it in elaborate ways. We're going to make it look really, really nice. It's like, okay, we'll go find Jeremiah's body. It's like, we can't find his body. It's like, oh, uh, okay then. Maybe the other prophets, we'll, we'll honor them. It's like, okay, well, what prophets do we have? That, 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 we, do we have their bodies somewhere? It's like, yes, we have the last three prophets in our position. We have, we have Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi. It's like, okay, let's create an awesome tomb and put their bodies in there and decorate it and honor it so that we can make people think that, hey, we learned our lesson. It's like, got it. So if you go to Israel today, you'll find this building. That right there, that triangle thing right there, that is the, it's called the Tomb of Prophets. And they were decorated by the religious people. These are people like, like, you know, by the Pharisees. Pharisees were decorated. The experts of the law, they would be decorating it. The religious people that died, the priests, they will all come and decorate it to show everybody that we would honor the people that we might have mistakenly killed in the past. Okay, are you guys following so far? Okay. So when, with that as a background, we go back to the Jesus story, okay? When Jesus looks at the crowd and says, you prophets, you experts of the law, you guys got it all wrong because you guys are decorating, you know, these tombs and stuff like that. The point that Jesus is really pointing at is this, this quote, which is, you say, you Pharisees say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. But these, these guys are saying, you know, we learn from our past. If we had been there, 
600 years ago, we would we'd totally not have done that. And Jesus would say, really? It's like, yeah, yeah, we learned our lesson. If, if that were to happen today, we would totally not kill the prophets. Like, really? Like, yeah. It's like, uh, I don't know, Jesus would say. Because, uh, you know, I'm pretty sure just a few days ago you tried to kill me. It's like, no, no, that must have been a mistake. No, I'm pretty sure. Like, wh- what do you mean? It's like, do you remember, like, in Matthew chapter 12 where, you know, I was healing somebody at a synagogue on a Saturday? It's like, no, I don't remember. Like, no, let me refresh your memory. Chapter 12, let's take a look. Then he said to them, Jesus said to them, stretch out your hand. So he stretched out his hand because this guy had a, had a shriveled up hand. And, uh, stretched it out and it was completely restored just as sound as the other hand. But the Pharisees went out and plotted how to, they might kill Jesus, right? So he's like, are you sure you learned your lesson from 600 years ago? Because it sounds like you're doing the exact same thing. That's why Jesus calls them hypocrites. You are decorating these tombs of prophets, acting like this will never happen again. Meanwhile, it's actually happening today. So Jesus is like, ah, this is what I have, this is the beef I have with you, right? But this isn't, he's not basically, but Jesus isn't saying you're just as bad as the people who killed Jeremiah. He's not saying that. He's actually saying something worse. The Pharisees were worse than their ancestors because they knew better. They learned from history these people are living on this side of history saying, we learned, we read all the, the, the history books and we know the mistakes that our ancestors made. Okay. <laughs> but with that knowledge, they're still making the same mistakes. So like, you're actually worse because those people, they thought they were doing the right thing. They, like, they didn't have any past history to learn from. On the other hand, you have hundreds of years of history to learn from and you're still making the same mistake. Woe to you, Pharisees and experts of the law, because you have not learned anything. And then Jesus, in the Luke version of it, he goes on and gives a little more, um, he gets a little more angry. He says, therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all prophets that has been shed, uh, uh, shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel, which is the first murder recorded in the Bible, to the blood of Zechariah, which is the last murder that's recorded in the Old Testament, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Okay, quick side note about, about Zechariah. Zechariah was doing the same thing that Jeremiah was doing. He was telling people, you've got to turn, you know, because God is like, he's trying to give you a second chance, but you're not you're taking advantage of him, so stop doing it. And as he was saying that, he was actually in the temple, the house of God, right? He was actually in the temple when he was killed. Like, you can't get any more offensive than that. Like, you think you're doing God's job by killing a God's servant inside of God's house? Like, no, like, right? But so he's saying, I can't believe these people. And so Jesus is saying, from the story of Abel, the first murder, all the way to the last murder of the Old Testament, that's Zechariah, he says, they all have something in common, which is also in common with you. If the Pharisees were there and knew, uh, okay, and knew that they were wrong, they would still have done the same thing as their ancestors. This is what he's saying. Um, so if the Pharisees, these people, the religious people of Jesus' day, if they were to have a time machine and they were to fly back into the time of Jeremiah, right? And if they were to sit there and they knew how history would turn out, what Jesus is saying is these people would have done the exact same thing still. Like they would still have murdered Jeremiah. And what Jesus would say here is, let's just say you had a time machine, you went all the way back to the Cain and Abel story, which is the first murder story of the Old Testament, right? If you were to jump into that time in history and knew the story where you know, Cain and Abel offer something up to God, and God says, hey, I like Abel's uh, offering more than I like Cain's, Cain's, uh, Cain's offering. He's like, you knowing the story clearly, knowing what would happen, how it affects the rest of humanity from that day on, 
you would still have murdered Abel. Like, why? It's, it's like, you know, it's not a brain thing. Jesus is saying it's not a cognitive thing. The reason why you want to kill me and the reason why people killed the prophets back then, the reason why Cain killed Abel back then is not because they were not smart enough. It's not because they, had enough, they didn't have enough information in their brain. He's saying that there's something else at play here. And that thing that's at play here that was the reason why Cain killed Abel and why the prophets killed and the priests and everybody else killed Jeremiah and the reason why they want to kill Jesus right now, that one thing, okay, I want you to know is this, that our hearts inconspicuously controls our minds. Just because you know, okay, like, for example, a lot of the mistakes you guys made in life, whether if it's the wrong person you dated or, like, the, jump, like, or the decision you made that was irrational, but in your mind you knew it was an irrational decision. But at the time you felt it was right because you, you justified it somehow in your, in your minds, right? Like, well, what is that thing that justified your mind? Well, what he's saying is this. This problem is not just a problem of the religious people. This problem right, where our heart inconspicuously controls our minds, is actually a human problem. In other words, every human is in danger of repeating history's mistakes. So when you say things like, had I been there, I wouldn't have done that. Jesus is like, uh, 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 be careful. It's easy to stay, stand outside the whole circumstance and, and judge them and say, yeah, I, of course you wouldn't have done it, but you weren't there. You weren't in that same emotional state. You weren't in that circumstance where you felt like you were against the wall. So what he's saying here is this. Our unchecked desires have the ability to take something that is wrong and justify it as right. Have you ever wanted something so bad and you knew that you had to compromise something in order to get that thing you really wanted? That instead of doing it knowing that it was wrong, your heart started to convince your brain that somehow it's the right thing to do. Has it ever happened to you guys? It's happened to me many times, Right? Right, like, oh, I want that so bad. I'm going to do anything I want, but I know that's wrong. But, you know, technically, it might be right if I look at it from this perspective, you know, right? And, and that's, that's what he's saying. And he's saying everything that happened from the Cain story all the way to the murder of Jesus, everything has to do with this unchecked desire, right? So he says, Pharisees, you think you're, you're a warrior for God. You think that by killing Jesus, you're actually standing for God, like you're doing the right thing. But deep down inside, you know, in your brain at least, you know that that's not true. But somehow, your desires to be right is making you think that doing this is actually the right thing. And so, we could all say, yeah, we've all been there. Now, I haven't murdered anybody, but we've all been there. We felt that urge in our hearts to justify ourselves in thinking that the wrong thing is right. And the Bible has a word for that, that we all have. And the Bible calls it this. It calls it sin. Sin in the Greek, in the New Testament, it's the word harmatia. And what it means is to miss the point, like miss the mark. And so, so for example, if you have a desire that's unchecked, and in the Bible that's called idols, okay? So if you have a, a desire, right? Let's just say you have a desire to be right. It's easy to take that desire and affect the way that we, the way that we see things. Like, for example... A lot of times, God tells us we need to love one another. Do you know how easy it is to redefine the word love so that it fits with our desires? Let's just say our desire is to be accepted by people. 
And then you could fool yourself in thinking, that's love. That I'm going to compromise everything that I am so that I can be accepted by this group of people. And you redefine the word love. You, you take what God has given us that's good and you kind of change it and you mold it so that it fits into your desires. And that's what sin is. It's when you take something that you're, like, you really, really want and you take something that God has given you that's good and you change it to fit your desires and all of a sudden it doesn't look like the thing that God gave you in the first place. Maybe for you, the desire is to be rich. And for that reason, you're willing to compromise on the definition of what it means to be right or even to be just. Justice, of course, justice, it looks like this. It looks like when, you know, like if I have all the money in the world, then I could dis dispense justice to the world. So I'm going to do everything it takes, including compromising some of the things I'm doing so that I have the money to show justice to the people. Like, no, that's not what justice is. But for some reason, in your mind, you redefine what justice is and what it looks like. Or maybe what you've done is you redefined religion. Because in many cases, for the sake of being right, like, I want to be right. I want to be the most right person in my community. And for that reason, you come over to here to, you know, what God's giving you is relationship with God, and you turn into a religion where it's all about we're wrong and we're right and everybody else in the world is wrong. God gave you something really pure and something good, and you turn into something that's very, very destructive. That's what sin does. It's missing the mark. Harmatia means missing the mark. Here's a, a definition and kind of a, what, what sin does to you from a, a professor of New Testament theology. He says this, Sin is rooted in our desires and selfish urges that compels us to act for our own benefit at the expense of others. When you start doing things that benefits only you at the expense of somebody else, that's what sin is. And when I read this, you're like, oh, yeah, I've done that before. Oh, yeah, I manipulated people before so that I could get my way. I benefited from it, but nobody else did. If that's you, which I think is all of us, we've all experienced sin in our lives. Every single human being has sinned. Because we always take ourselves and say, I'm number one. So next time you think about a story in the Old Testament or maybe some story that you heard in the news and you were to say this, you were to say, if I were in that situation, I wouldn't have dot, dot, dot. Jesus tells us, wait, before you finish that sentence, I want you to remember this, that remember that we are capable of the same mistakes because we all have sin in our lives. We all have that voice inside of us that says, yeah, but if, if, if we were to, justify just a little bit, then it all, you know, it'll work for us. Like, like when we say, like, if we were in that situation, we, th we think, I think of stories like, like when I was watching Star Wars, I'm like, Anakin, we know where the story is going. You're going to turn into Darth Vader soon. Spoiler alert. Okay. You're going to become Darth Vader. If I was in that situation, I would have totally dumped Padme, you know, like, or I would have totally not have given to the dark side. But, but if you were in that situation, maybe you would have compromised on a few things here and there. By the way, in the Star Wars story, Anakin totally thought he was doing the right thing, as what a lot of villains think, right? They're doing the right thing, but they thwarted what the right thing looks like in order to fit their desires. And it's very dangerous. But okay, that's, that's like, okay, like, I've heard a lot of people say this. If I was the president of the United States, I would be running the country a little differently. You don't know that. You don't know the, you know, things that are happening. I'm not saying that our president's doing everything right. What I'm saying is, is if we were in that position, we might be making some of the same decisions. We don't know. 
right? Or if I were that rich, if I had that much money, I wouldn't be spending it on that. You probably hear stories of celebrities like, so-and-so just purchased a multi-million dollar home, you know, in the middle of somewhere. And they're like, I wouldn't be spending that much money on house. I would probably be spending that money and giving it to the poor, you know, <laughs> right? Sure. I mean, hey, I believe you, okay? <laughs> but you don't know because we all have sin inside of us. We all have a way of justifying, like, okay, I'm rich. That means people might be coming after me, so I need to make sure I have, I have some some uh, fences and gates and guard dogs and servants and, and p- police people to, you know, like, to patrol around my neighborhood and, uh, and I'm going to build t- high walls and, uh, oh, I'm going to have a butler because, you know, the house is too big. You know, like, and you start realizing, oh, now that I'm in that situation, I find myself justifying some of the things that I thought I would say I would never do. You know, this is human nature, right? Or maybe you said, if I was more popular, I would never do that. Maybe you know somebody in school who's super popular, and they're making fool of themselves. And you're like, you know what? If I was popular, I would reach out to the people who are bullied. Yeah, that's what I would do. Yeah, that's honorable. That's a, good, that's a good answer. But you don't know that until you're popular. You realize that your popularity is dependent on you doing bad things, and now you're like, well, what, what do I do with that, right? You don't know. And that's what Jesus is saying to these people. It's like, you keep saying that if you lived 600 years ago, you would have treated Jeremiah differently. That you would have been like, Jeremiah just spoke a great word to us. You guys, before you kill him, I'm going to stand between, quick, Jeremiah, run. I'm going to be, you know, like, it's like, no, you don't know that. As a matter of fact, I know you're not going to do that because you're doing the exact same thing to me right now where you're trying to kill me. You don't know because we all have sin inside of us. If I were stronger, I would stand up to the people who are always being beat up. You don't know that. Because we all have sin inside of us. There's a part of us that wants to protect ourselves first, our reputations first, our riches first, our position of power first before we care for somebody else. And Jesus says that's sin. And we all have it, so you have no right to say, if I were them, I would do something different. But there is one person in history who said, if I were them, I wouldn't do that, and actually follow through on it. And that character is Jesus. Looking back at his story, one of his disciples, Peter, he writes this. Okay, this is what he says. When they, the the people who wanted to kill Jesus, hurled insults at him, that's Jesus, he did not retaliate, whereas most people would have. When he suffered, when Jesus suffered, he made no threats, which a lot of us would have probably. We don't know until we're actually there. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Peter is talking about his master, Jesus, and he's saying, there's one guy that I know in history who actually turned the other cheek when it was so much easier. With all the power that Jesus has, he could have just been like, like he could have done the Pikachu thing, right? He's like, thunderbolt, you know, kill them, <laughs> smite thee, you know, right? He could have done that. But with all the power in, his, in, his, in the palm of his hands, when he was being threatened, when he was being persecuted, he's, Peter says, he stood back, and he said, God, Father, I trust that you, you're going to do what is right here and allow them to kill him, right? And talking about Jesus, next verse, he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin, sins and live for righteousness. What he's, this is a very interesting theological thought here. He's saying because Jesus was able to live his life in a way where he didn't let sin take over his life, when he had every right to do it, he could have justified it just as easily as any of us. He decided, no, I'm going to stand firm and I'm going to do what is right. And in doing that, 
He's taking all the sins of the world. Jesus is acting as representation of everybody in this room, everybody in this country, everybody in the history of the world of all time. He's taking all of that, putting it on himself, and he says, I, as a human being, am going to do exactly what humanity should have been doing all along. From the time of Abel to the time of Zechariah to the future of the world, everything that people mess up on, everywhere, every part of our lives that we compromise on, that's called sin, right? I'm going to put it on my shoulders, and I'm going to live the life that, I'm, that the world should have been living all along. So that's what he means by saying he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And so when Jesus was killed on the cross without retaliation, Peter is making this observation saying, when he died on that cross, our sins died with it too. And because of that, we now have the ability to live, well, here it says for righteousness, what it, that's fancy Christian lingo for, to live to do what is right to do what is right in all circumstances. So next time you feel tempted, like, oh, I'm, I really want to do this and compromise this, you know, and I could justify, you know, doing that. He's like, when that happens, he says, God has this plan for you where he's going to take your heart and mold it day by day so you become more and more the person that you ought to be. So Peter concludes by saying this, by his wounds, you have been healed. He says, when Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't just dying because some people were wanted, wanted him dead. When he died on the cross, he actually died for something, for someone, for you. And by him dying on the cross, he took the sins of the world, take, took your sins, and when he died on the cross, he says, that old self where you couldn't, you always justified you know, your, your, your reasoning, he says, now you can shed that off because Jesus died with that. And now you have a new creation. You are a new person where you can finally have the willpower through the Holy Spirit. You could, you could actually do the right thing because God is molding you day by day by day if you have that relationship with Jesus. Jesus is saying, if you want to overcome this destructive behavior called sin, you need to have a relationship with me. So what about you? Do you see yourself, when I, when I was describing what sin is like, do you see yourself in there? Do you, were you like, I remember when I did that, and I hate doing that. I'm so, so, so sick and tired of justifying to myself, lying to myself, deceiving myself, that the, right thing, the wrong thing is actually right. I'm so sick and tired of that. How do I escape from that? According to the biblical writers, they say there is no escape from that except for one, and that's Jesus. And so the invitation that, that Peter had for his disciples and the invitation that Jesus had for his disciples and the invitation that all the New Testament writers had for their disciples and the people who read their books, the invitation is, if you want to escape, if you need salvation, if you need to pull yourself out of this life of sin, what you need to do is you have to put your trust in Jesus. And for some of you, you're kind of like, I already did that, but I still struggle with this. And that's normal. Here's an interesting thing, and I'll close with this one thought. I don't know if you noticed, but in this sermon, I, I try not to use the word sinner. And the reason why I try not to use the word sinner is because in the Bible, people who started following Jesus are never called sinners. They're called saints. Does that mean they don't sin? No, no, no. It means that they sin, right? But they, in the past, there are sinners who happen to do good things every once in a while. But people who said, yes, I want to follow Jesus, are now called saints who happen to sin every once in a while. Do you see the difference there? Right? And so what Jesus is inviting us to do is this. He's saying, if you put your trust in me, then at that point, 
God will look at you and say, you're no longer a sinner. You are a saint who happens to sin every once in a while. That's God's way of saying, everything that's wrong with you, I've swept away. It's clean now. But every once in a while, the sin is going to creep into your life. But when that happens, I'll be there to make sure that it gets wiped out and that you get become a better person every day by day by day. Don't we all want that? And that's the invitation that Jesus has given us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.